peace, by those who make peace. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, what we see here in chapter 3 and really a good portion of chapter 2 as well is an extension and an expansion of James' challenge that he gives in chapter 2, verse 17, where he makes the declaration that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. We have already expounded that and shown what it does mean, but his point is this. Everyone who professes genuine saving faith, that faith itself will be manifest in a series of things. Now, he categorizes it along three lines. Uh, And by the way, when we addressed uh, what he means in chapter 2, verse 17, about faith without works is dead, we looked at that in conjunction with Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he emphasizes works or walk. So the point is that the works that James calls us to are, is the walk of faith that Paul addresses both in Ephesians chapter 2 as well as elsewhere in Ephesians. But I'll quote uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10 uh, where he says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that being the case, when, Paul, when, when James says faith without a walk that is the result of that faith, then the claim of faith is itself dead. And so therefore I would say that his statement is that faith, genuine saving faith, manifests itself in a particular way. And that is the basis for the exhortations that he gives. Now, I would argue also that what he addresses in chapters 2 and 3 are three elements of faith at work in the individual. Three elements or three, three vantage points where we can see faith at work in the individual who claims saving faith. It is seen first off in our treatment and our view of fellow image bearers of God. That's his whole point in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So the walk or the work of faith is manifest in how we see and how we treat other human beings. Now, it doesn't mean that we will always say the right thing, do the right thing towards our fellow image bearers, But we will see them because of our union with Christ. One of the things at work in us is to see our image bearers the way God calls us to see our image bearers. And so therefore, genuine saving faith is manifest in our view and treatment of our fellow image bearers. But also we saw in chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 that uh, not only is genuine saving faith manifest in how we view and treat our fellow image bearers, but it is also seen in our speech. Genuine saving faith is the means by which we are to govern what we say to others, what we say about others. And even those things, it makes us mindful of the things 
that we should say, but we don't say. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James talks about the taming of the tongue, and he basically says, you can't tame the tongue because it's been set on fire by hell. So how then do we control our speech? We who are the possessors of saving faith have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to put to death the tongue, not try to douse the fire, put it to death. And as, just as, as viewing and treating our fellow image bearers is an ongoing work of grace because we have been saved by faith or saved by grace through faith, because of that, likewise, God is continuously at work in us, causing us and, and empowering us to season all of our speech with grace. But James is making the point that if for you to claim faith in Christ and are reckless in your speech, it doesn't mean that you don't have genuine faith, but it does mean that you are speaking in a manner that is inconsistent with the faith that you profess. But the third angle here, and the third aspect, which is what we will be addressing this morning in our text, genuine faith, when, when Paul or James says uh, that, that faith without works is dead, and he describes that living faith in terms of how we see and how we treat our fellow image bearers and how we conduct ourselves in the, in, in the area of speech, in this third area, he talks about wisdom. Faith, genuine faith, is seen in the wisdom by which we operate and function in this world. And that's his point in verses 13 through 18, that we demonstrate our faith through the source of wisdom by which we function in this world. Now, uh, this morning our focus obviously is on wisdom, so I think it would be safe to say that wisdom, in, in a nutshell, wisdom is the rationale behind both our words, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and our actions, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So, in other words, there is a rationale, there is, there is, there is a source that prompts us. There is a, an, an, an intellectual assent that we give to every thought and action or every action uh, and word that we speak. Uh, Jonathan Edwards talks, uh, says this about, and I usually quote it in reference to the freedom of the will or in speaking about the will, and he says that uh, the mind is, or the will is nothing more than the mind choosing. But the mind always chooses what it perceives to be of the highest good. And its perception of good is according to its nature. Now, here's the reason I mention this. Because every action, everything that we do, everything that we say, the moment that we do it and the moment that we say it, we do so because in the moment that we speak and act, we think it's good. We, we, have, rationed, we, we, we have given thought to ourselves, and for whatever reason, our rationale is that our words and our actions are logical and they make sense to us. 
what we have seen in recent weeks and, and, and months is that a lot of people, what looked like a good idea at the time, once it gets viewed and seen and heard and spoken out loud, once, it, once it's out there, it doesn't sound as good out there as it did in here. So what James is addressing here is the wisdom that shapes the action and that frames the speech. So the three things work together, and all of them are extensions of the idea of faith without works is dead. So really, this is, this is the engine room. The idea of wisdom is the engine room from which the words are formulated and views and opinions are shaped by uh, about our fellow image bearers. It's in the engine room of wisdom. So let me begin with a working definition of wisdom, a working dictionary definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience and knowledge. It is the soundness of action or decision with regard to the application of experience and knowledge equaling good judgment. Okay, so wisdom. Wisdom is, again, it is the soundness of an action or decision. And, and that's really just another way of saying is that wisdom is the foundation from which actions and judgments or actions and words flow. It's the foundation. Now, in the end, it will be determined to be sound judgment or unsound judgment. But at the time, at the time that we speak and at the time that we act, we think we're acting in wisdom. So broadly speaking, any action that we take, we do so because we deem it to be the right course of action based on our experience and our knowledge. So that's a, a working definition of wisdom. It's, the, it's the, the means or it's the basis upon which we determine whether or not we should uh, act or speak and what we should, uh, how we should act and what we should say. Now, here's the second thing. So that's a working dictionary definition of wisdom. Secondly, according to our text here in James, there are two sources or two types of wisdom. According to the text, there are two sources or two types of wisdom. In verse 15, he speaks of wisdom that is from above, and then he also speaks of wisdom that is earthly. So what I want to do here is delineate between wisdom from above and wisdom that is earthly. And I'll begin with wisdom that is earthly. What do we mean by wisdom that is earthly? Wisdom that is earthly is the reasoning that flows from our fallen nature. Okay, so it flows from us naturally. It's it flows from our fallen nature. James says that that wisdom 
which is earthly, he says that it is, it is unspiritual. And he says that it is demonic. Now, those are terms that we think we know generally, so let me just kind of flesh it out. What does he mean by unearth or, or earthly and demonic? There are three statements that I want to extract from the Apostle Paul that help us understand the reasoning process that James says is earthly and demonic and it's unspiritual. Three, three statements from the Apostle Paul. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what Paul says. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So being dead in trespasses and sins, he says, it caused you to walk in a manner that's consistent with the prince of the power of this world, speaking of the devil. And that's the way James means that it's demonic. But we'll see that in a little, in, in a little, uh, little later. But then he says also, Paul also, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 17 through 18, Hold in mind, he's speaking to the Ephesian believers who were Gentiles, meaning that they were not natural Jews. They were Gentiles. They were Gentile unbelievers. And he reminds them in chapter 2 that in your natural state, you were dead in trespasses and sins, following the dictates of Satan. So in chapter 4, Verses 17 and 18, he admonishes the Christians that are at Ephesus in this way. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So, notice the, the, the pattern. In chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You did follow the course of the evil one, just like all of the other sons and daughters of disobedience. But then, in, we skipped over intentionally, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, but... God, who is rich in mercy, has transferred you into Christ Jesus. So therefore, in chapter 4, he says, now don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. In other words, you're not like your, you, the rest of the, the, your Ephesian neighbors. They, you, you can, there's a lot of things that you can have in common, but your view can't be shaped by them anymore. Because you, remember, their understanding is still darkened. And he says the reason their understanding is darkened is because they are alienated from the life that is in God. So that's his warning to them. Don't walk like them. In other words, your reasoning ought not be from the same source as the rest of the Gentiles, uh, the unbelieving Ephesians. Now, he takes it up a notch. 
in, in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. This is what Paul says to his readers. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's what he says pointedly. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And those who are in the flesh reason and their source, a reason from themselves and their source of wisdom, their source of reasoning obviously is not the word or law of God. These verses enlarge what James calls earthly wisdom. And in our text, he, uh, he, he is telling, he's, he's admonishing his hearers, his readers, to not follow the course of earthly wisdom or earthly, um, earthly reasoning. Because ultimately, Earthly wisdom is in resistance to and rebellion against the law of God. In earthly wisdom, the only thing that matters is you and everyone who agrees with you. That's earthly wisdom. It rules by consensus and corrupt affections. So it seems good, and that's why you can have a good, a good kid at home with his parents, and he's good around everyone else with his family, but when he's with a group of peers, it seemed as if it was a good idea to somehow break somebody else's window and run. Doesn't seem like it's a good idea at the dinner table, Right? It doesn't seem like it's a good idea. And same thing, young ladies, they, it seems like a good idea to do a certain thing when you are to, to speak well of people when you are around family members, but when you are around a group of peers and you just fill in the blank, parents who've raised children through teenage years and you get the call or you get the, the notice, they did What? <laughs> And then you sit down and you talk to them and you say, well, what made you think that was a good idea? The people they were with that connects to the nature that's in them. The same thing that makes us think certain things are a good idea. Right? Like men wearing Bermuda shorts and, and gym socks and dress shoes. Something made you think that was a good idea at the time. So here's what James is arguing against. Because ultimately, and that kind of dress code goes against all of the rules of rationality. <laughs> but in the moment, it seemed good. 
And the fallen self at the core of it is in rebellion against the standard of God's law. And what it seeks is to do its own thing and it seeks affirmation for doing its own thing. And so James calls it demonic. And the reason it's demonic is not because you can make your head spin around, but it's demonic because the demons are in rebellion against the law of God. And when we act in rebellion against the law of God, then we're acting like demons. It is, it is, it is called earthly because it resists what God has made clearly known. And so therefore, any wisdom, any body of truth, any rationale, that is resistant to or rebellious against the standard of God. Anything that, and and, and, and let me just look at it in the realms, the two realms in which we've already addressed, in which James has addressed, and this is where he's going to the engine room of your view of your neighbor. Anything, what, what is it that makes it okay for to, to speak of a neighbor as being less than an image bearer of God. I don't care the country of, of origin. I don't care the customs. What is it that makes it okay? As my mother would say, to speak of people as being, call them everything but a child of God. What is it that makes that okay? I'll tell you what makes it okay. Our fallen nature... And the people that we consciously take, we are in league with, that would affirm our fallen nature. What is it that makes it seem okay to not only think of a certain way towards certain people groups, but what makes it okay? What what gives you, what gives you the authority to speak? in vile and vicious terms against others, to take pleasure in the failures and the weaknesses of others, and to put it in words. What is it that makes that okay? It's you. It's not God's law. It's not not God's word. It's us. And everyone that agrees with us. And James calls both the actions and the words that allows us to be abusive and that that gives us some sort of refuge in our ill treatment of others. He says that's because we are following worldly wisdom. But now, on the other hand, James also speaks of wisdom that comes down from above. Now, he's not saying that it comes down from above like the raindrops. 
It doesn't fall on you like dew. But James speaks in the same way that he describes wisdom that is of the earth as being demonic and non-spiritual. He describes the wisdom that comes from above in 13. He said in verse 13, he says it's meek. The character of this wisdom that comes from above is meek as opposed to the arrogance that comes from the the, the wisdom that is from the earth. But then in verse 17, he says that this wisdom is pure, it's peaceable, it's it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. In other words, we wisdom that comes from above judges individuals equally so that we see individuals equally as neighbors or as brothers and sisters. Neighbors can be wrong, and so can brothers and sisters, but we see them first impartially. We don't see them according to tribe and other things, but it's an impartiality. So that what you dislike in this individual, you ought to dislike in in the other individual who looks like you. It's impartial because it it values merit for being meritorious and it despises vice because of vice. And so therefore, it's not going to celebrate in one what it condemns in the other. That's what it means to be impartial. That what is is condemned over here is also condemned here. I grew up with friends that I don't know how they were able to do it, but my my parents had a strict thing. My my parents were like this. You didn't steal. Period. But they despised a thief. And, and so, therefore, anything that came into the house, you needed to be able to explain it. If they didn't buy it, they wanted to know where you got it from. And I had friends that could steal, and they could bring it home. But my parents were this way. They didn't want to be stolen from, and they didn't want to give room to thieves. So it's on both sides of it. It's impartial. That's the wisdom that comes from above. That it's not like it's stealing over here, but it's something else over there. No, he's, it, was, it was a hard and fast rule. It's impartial. So wisdom that is from above, he says, is impartial. Not only is it impartial, but it's sincere. And so you can clearly see the contrast between the two types of wisdom. It's unmistakable and it's unavoidable. But the most succinct distinction of the two sources and the two types of wisdom is what James says in verse 15, where he says that this other, the, the wisdom that should guide our thinking and our actions is that it comes from above. In other words, the wisdom that is good, 
does not emanate from us naturally. It does not flow from us naturally. It is divine and it is outside of us, which is to say that the wisdom that is from above is gospel wisdom. Which is why in chapter 1, James says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who generously gives to all without reproach. It's important for us to know that wisdom, as James describes it here, the wisdom that is good, the wisdom that he speaks of in positive terms, does not naturally come from us, but rather it is outside of us. It comes down from above and is made available to all of those who have been brought into union with Christ. Therefore, let me just lead, conclude with a, a third thought here that we'll flesh out. Let's therefore explore what is meant by gospel wisdom. Let's, let's, let's explore that a little further because James says this comes down from above. And if it comes from above, that means it comes from outside of us. And if it comes from outside of us, that means it comes from God. And everything that comes from God to us is found in Christ. So therefore, let's explore it a little bit. And we'll begin with, with, with looking at what we read in Proverbs. How can we talk about wisdom without talking about the book of Proverbs? In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. And in the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What a wonderful statement. That, that, that just rides beautifully into what we see here. Fear of God, fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is itself insight. Now, let's look at this from a few different vantage points. First off, fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? A number of things. Fear of God could mean terror. Terror, and, and certainly fallen Christians or fallen humans have reason to be terrified of a living God. So there is a sense of terror in that. But fear also means reverence. To revere God. Now maybe unregenerate sinners might have some sense of terror of God. And therefore they try to you know, whistle in the graveyard and pretend as if he doesn't exist. Because there is this, this innate terror of him. But only those who have been awakened by grace can actually have reverence for him. So reverence for God, revering him, honoring him. But it also means to have a sense of awe. So, so here, here's what we can say, that fear of God includes reverence, awe, and terror. And all of these are the results of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It is only the Holy Spirit who regenerates us 
to see that we are in terror. I like the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. And no one comes to Jesus for salvation unless you understand the terror of being guilty before before an omnipresent omnipotent God. Jonathan Edwards says that before God makes men mindful of his mercy, he first makes them mindful of their misery. And so the Holy Spirit awakens us to our misery and our fallen and condemned condition and then he points us to the salve of the gospel in Christ. So he awakens us to genuine terror. So no one can have true terror. No one comes to Christ unless you are terrified of the wrath of God. Call it archaic if you want. But no one comes to the the bosom of Christ until you are aware of the wrath of Almighty God. But no one comes to the mercy of God in the person of Christ without being in awe of him. We are in awe. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us a proper sense of awe so that we can see the glory of the Father in the face of the Son. And no one comes to Christ for salvation that is not awakened to a sense of awe and reverence for the almighty God. All of these things, the fear of God, is the the work of the regenerating Holy Spirit. Therefore, I would argue that the unrepentant are incapable of wisdom because they have no capacity to fear God. Here's the second thing in that regard. The wisdom that God requires, or as James alludes to here, the the wisdom that is necessary for right reasoning is itself a gift from God. Wisdom, the wisdom that God calls his creatures to operate in is itself a gift from God. James, in exhorting his readers to exercise this gift, is telling them to look to the gospel. That's basically what he's saying. Look to the gospel. uh, Because it's only in the gospel that we have the ability to reason in such a way that we can see image bearers in the way that we should. It's only through the gospel that we can sanctify our speech. Only in the gospel. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Not only is Christ our righteousness, but he is our wisdom. And the reason James says that if you lack wisdom, then you can ask God. Uh, God and he will generously give it to you is because it is already built into the package that is the gospel. 
Now that brings us to a final thought, and that's this. Here's the challenge for believers. Brothers and sisters, what James is saying is that all the wisdom that we need to function in God's world is given to us in the gospel. But we have to be intentional in our pursuit of gospel wisdom. In other words, here's what I mean by that. We have to be be intentional in grounding our wisdom or grounding our reasoning through the insight that comes from knowing the Holy One. We have to ground our worldview in what we know about God through Christ. It is important. We have to be intentional in this. We have to be intentional in that that our conversations are guided by what we know of God through Christ and not by what what we follow on our Twitter timeline. Brothers and sisters, what it might be okay to say, and we're all, we're all this way. There are some conversations that we won't have in front of some people because we know the maturity level and, and we know that we won't be viewed a particular way. But as we take our, let our hair down, be careful. Be careful. Because every circle in which you let your hair down in, you may be affirmed by those in the circle, but you're always before an audience of one. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, it's important that we are intentional in grounding our view our words, and our actions according to the reverence and the awe that we have about the one who saved us. And it's important that our interactions our horizontal relationships are governed by the insight that we have from knowing the Holy One. Because brothers and sisters, when others would tell us, well, you know what, the the Holy One, knowing the Holy One gives us an insight that should rise above every other source that affirms our fallen nature so that when we act, because remember as we said in the beginning, what we do and what we say is because we think it's right. Wisdom is the reasoning and the rationale that makes us think it's right. 
And there is a wisdom that, that flows from our nature. We call it our gut instinct. And some folk don't know the difference between their gut instinct and what has been objectively revealed by God. We go with our gut rather than go with God's grace. You see, here's one of the difficult parts of the wisdom that comes from above. It doesn't beat its chest. It doesn't do touchdown dances in the end zone. It's meek. It's strong, but it's meek. And its overall end is peace. James is talking about those who are dealing in the church. And he's warning them to not function in the covenant community with the wisdom that comes from the earth. But also, he's telling us, as we go into the world, don't operate according to the wisdom that's been sanctioned by the world. But let your judgments, let your reasoning be shaped by that which has come down from above. And anything that comes to us from God from above, can't we wrap it in Christ? And his point is that as we function in this world, strangers and pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, we don't have to buy into the wisdom that comes from the world. We have a wisdom that has come from outside of the world. And that wisdom is wrapped in Christ. And James is admonishing us. You're going to justify your actions. There's a reason behind everything that you say and do. But let your reasoning be drenched in the grace that has come to us in Christ. So that our speech and that our views of others would be seasoned by grace and not fueled by the polemics and all of the other stuff that we get from other sources. Because you, brothers and sisters, have been bought with the price and you're not your own. So the challenge is to consciously, intentionally, and consistently bring our reasoning into subjection 
to what God has revealed to us in his son. Let's pray. Gracious God.